Can you help me thank God for Tara for being our MC today? Um, also for our worship team and our band for how they lead us each week. Can we just put our hands together and thank God for them? I just want to take another, a moment to say uh, welcome again to all of you uh, for whom this is your first time with us. We are really, really grateful that you're here. Um, there are so many incredible churches across the Twin Cities. Um, there are so many things you could be doing in these last few uh, weeks before um, the bottom drops out with weather. Uh, but we are grateful that you're here with us this morning for a few minutes. And we uh, want to continue in worship this morning by jumping into God's Word. We have been, for the last several weeks, the last uh, four weeks now, in a series from 2 Corinthians that we're calling uh, Selfies. Selfies. And um, if you have not been a part of um, worship these last few weeks, you've missed any one of the messages, we would encourage you to check out our podcast. We would encourage you to check out our Facebook, where we um, live stream our services each week so that you can get caught up on um, what God has been saying to us through those messages so far. Today, we want to continue in this series um, by looking at 2 Corinthians as Paul speaks um, in chapter 8 about grace and about giving, about grace and about giving. Let's take a moment and pray together uh, before we jump, as we jump into God's word. Lord God, thank you so much for your goodness, your faithfulness, for your love that you pour out graciously on us, for the lavish ways in which you remind us each and every day that you are with us, that you are for us, that you are a good and loving God. And so now as we continue in worship, we pray, Lord, that you would take every song that's been sung, every prayer that's been lifted up, every bit of scripture that's been read, and that you would use it to continue to transform us. Help us to see you clearly and to know that you love us with an everlasting love. God, use uh, my preparation this week uh, to just speak your word clearly to your people that they would not be confused, that they would not be uh, left thinking that they're alone in this life. Someone came into this room feeling incredibly lonely today. Someone came into this room feeling discouraged today, Lord. Someone came into this room, perhaps even were dragged into this room by a parent or someone else. However they got here, God, I pray that you would speak to hearts and minds today. Let us leave this room changed as you open up your word and feed us like a loving father does. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue in the series today, I want to start with a question. When you think about graceful people, who comes to mind? When you think about graceful people, and I say graceful, sometimes my South Carolina accent, it, it betrays me. You're not talking grateful, graceful. So who, who are the graceful people um, that you think of? As I did a little bit of internet research this week, uh, names like Cicely Tyson kept coming up. Um, Felicia Rashad kept coming up. Misty Copeland popped up a few times. Presidents are often seen as graceful. Not all of them. That's all I'm going to say about that. My wife, if she were here this morning, she was at the early service. I didn't say this because she was sitting there. Idris Elba is often 
said to be graceful? I don't see it. I don't see it. I, I really don't see it. Grace Kelly and Henry Golding is a name that I wasn't super familiar with. I've only seen one of his movies, but he was on a number of lists of graceful people. Um, Sean Connery, welcome to the rock. But that guy, and that's all the accents I do, impressions I do. That's as good as it gets. Deion Sanders or the Vikings' own Hall of Famer Chris Carter. I've always said that Chris Carter was a dancer who just happened to put on football pads. He was incredible, the things that he was able to do on the field. But as I thought through that question and looked at these lists that kept popping up, it made me wonder, what does it actually mean to be graceful? Gracefulness can be a bit hard to define, but we know it when we see it, right? To describe someone as graceful is to say that they are uh, smooth or incredibly fluid. It speaks to a certain way of carrying oneself regardless of the circumstances surrounding them. Graceful is often a term used to describe dancers and athletes, often because of their ability to master the movements of their bodies. They're able to do difficult things, yet appear as if it's easy enough for any of us to do. I'm sure that gracefulness bears some huge responsibility when average people like us get injured trying to play sports. We watch professional athletes gracefully doing their thing, and they make it look easy. And before we know it, we're out in the garage grabbing that ball or that racket or those tennis or those clubs. And before you know it, you're checking into urgent care. <laughs> Shoulders and ankles and Achilles tendons bear the marks of the fact that graceful people make us think we could be that way too. Being graceful is something that most of us probably desire. It may even be something that you have intentionally been working on. According to that reliable source, WikiHow, being graceful means it has a couple different components. It means appearing graceful. It has to do with appearance. It has to do with behavior, behaving gracefully. It also has to do with how we treat other people. When it comes to appearance, being graceful means being comfortable in your own skin, maintaining good posture, breathing deeply, dressing nicely, looking, being flexible, walking with purpose as if you have somewhere to be and something to do, or sitting gracefully. When it comes to behaving gracefully, it usually speaks to us maintaining our composure, speaking well, being polite, polite, having dignity. And when it comes to being graceful as it relates to treating others with grace, it's often about being respectful, being tactful, being helpful, not holding grudges, and even accepting criticism well. Friends, gracefulness is a good thing, and I want to encourage us all today to grow in gracefulness. But as I thought about what we've covered in this series over the last several weeks, and as I thought about the kinds of people who might make a list of the world's most graceful people, I thought it would be worthwhile for us to take a moment this morning and remind us that celebrity and gracefulness are not the same thing. There are many reasons for us to desire to be graceful. But if that desire is actually driven by a need for approval or a need for love or a need to be famous, we ultimately find those endeavors unsatisfying. When we look at the book of 2 Corinthians, I would argue that at the heart of their challenges was the fact that they took a very normal and natural desire, a desire to be known and a desire to be loved, and they allowed that desire to become an idol for them. 
they allowed what we what I see as a basic human desire to become misconstrued and it became a lust that dominated their lives. For them, success, and not actual success, but just the appearance of looking successful, became a driving force in their society. And I can imagine that these qualities associated with gracefulness, especially those that have to do with appearance, would have been most desirable in Corinth at the time Paul ministered there. And in the midst of an incredibly image-conscious society, Paul worked tirelessly to help the Corinthians get a broader, richer understanding of what it meant to be graceful, what it meant to be the people of God. And there in the course of teaching, Paul calls these Corinthians to refocus their attention and to remember a set of promises that they had made. So if you have your Bibles, let's open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, looking at verses 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. It will also appear on the screen for you. Here's what the Word of God says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they were they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first, all to the Lord, first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. And so we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Verse 7, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Amen. Paul has spent the first part of this letter speaking to his reconciled relationship with the Corinthians. He's argued for his apostleship and his authority over them. He, he, the majority of the people had by this point come to, to reacquaint themselves with Paul and accept him as their spiritual authority. And all of a sudden, Paul shifts his attention from that matter to another very important matter. It was a matter of a collection that he had been gathering from the church at Corinth to send to Jerusalem to support the church there. 
the church in Jerusalem, more accurately, the churches there, was they were considered the mother church. And you remember that Peter, the apostle, the friend of Jesus, the fiery and close companion of our Lord and Savior, had been called to minister in Jerusalem to the Jewish converts to Christianity. While at the same time, Paul was sent out of Jerusalem and sent out to build the church among the Gentiles, among those who were not Jewish. As he went traveling from place to place and starting churches and supporting churches, Paul began to encourage the churches, the Gentile churches, to collect funds among them that could be sent back to Jerusalem to support the church there. There were two main reasons for this collection. The first was that there was incredible poverty in the churches in Jerusalem. The churches in Jerusalem found themselves in poverty due to religious persecution as a result, perhaps, of a famine that they had also, uh, we read about in Acts 11. It was also perhaps because of a growing number of widows that found themselves there in the city as we read about in Acts chapter 6. Any and all of these things likely contributed to the fact that the church in Jerusalem was in real financial trouble and they needed the support of churches in other places. The second reason for the collection was the idea of unity. Paul felt as if in the midst of their financial need, if these Gentile churches might find a way to support the church there in Jerusalem, that it would show them that this was legitimate. Their faith in Jesus was legitimate, that they were in harmony with the brothers and sisters back there in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul often called the collection a koinonia, an act of fellowship, a way of tangibly expressing a commitment to the brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. And so Paul urges these Gentile churches in Corinth, in Macedonia, in Galatia, and other places to give voluntarily and generously so that they could support and honor the brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. When we begin to read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the, the encouragement to give, this is not a new thing. This is not the first time these brothers and sisters have heard this from Paul. As much as in a year earlier, Paul had encouraged the Corinthians to give in this way. He had given them even a strategy of how to set money aside weekly so that when he came back to them, they would not have to scramble to find the money to give. And at that time, the Corinthians had excitedly agreed to do just that. They would take some time each week and pull money together, and when Paul and Titus got back, they would have the money together. But in the midst of their controversies, in the midst of the controversies that we've been talking about for three weeks now, the Corinthians never actually got around to collecting the money. Some commentators point out that the Corinthians were so distracted by the beef that they were in internally, arguing over whether Paul was a real apostle, talking back and forth about the relationship between his sufferings and his qualifications for leadership that they had simply forgotten to ever prepare the offering. But other commentators wondered if the Corinthians actually had any money to give. You remember that there were false teachers, false apostles, shiny suit preachers who came to town and they demanded money of the people. And some commentators believe that perhaps the Corinthians had been so busy giving their money to these false teachers that they didn't have any money left to give to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Whatever the case, it's certain, I'm certain of this, that the Corinthians had lost their focus. They had been distracted by strife. 
They had been distracted by the wayward message of false teachers. And one result of their lost focus was that, was that they failed to honor a promise that they had made to the brothers and sisters in the faith. And so Paul uses this occasion to call the Corinthians back to the right way, back into focus and back into doing the things that he had called them to do. And so Paul begins here in chapter 8 by lifting up the example of another church. He tells them to look at the work of the, Corinth, the, the, the Macedonian church. Paul was not without strategy here. Paul seems to be saying, let me show you what God has done in Macedonia. And, and the inference here is they've done it there in Macedonia. I would like to see you do the same thing here. And so Paul explains in verse 2 that the Macedonians found themselves in the middle of a severe trial. They found themselves right there in the middle of that trial, and they didn't wait until they got out of the trial to give. Right there in the middle of that trial, their joy and their poverty, it welled up in a generous offering for the church. The word says that their, their joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And Paul says in verse 3 that they gave what they were able and then they gave beyond their ability. He goes on to say that entirely on their own, without being provoked, they pleaded for the privilege of sharing in this service to the, large, to the Lord's people. And as I read that over and over and studied this week, I got the sense that there was, we were experiencing there, witnessing a little bit of petty Paul. Paul was perhaps employing an old device that mothers use from time to time when they're trying to motivate us to do something. Moms are, are, are notorious for lifting up an example of what somebody else is doing to get you to do what she wants you to do. And I imagine Paul, in some of his petty moments, looking over his glasses like this. Mm-hmm. You heard about the Macedonians, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard they had some real trouble over there in Macedonia. Mm -hmm. But they turned that thing around and they gave some money and then they gave above what they promised. Mm -hmm. Paul never says to them, you need to be like the Macedonians. But Paul knew what he was doing in lifting up this example. He was saying, you're not the only one who has been asked to give and you're not the only one who's had some trouble. But you promise to give, and I want you to honor your word. Paul doesn't stay petty too long. Paul says about the Macedonians, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to us as well. Paul points to an important reality that I want us to remember today that all of our good works, every good and perfect thing that we strive to do must first start out of our relationship with God. The Macedonians recommitted themselves to the Lord, and then they followed through on their promise even though they were in a difficult situation. The Corinthians, on the other hand, were a very distracted bunch. And I believe Paul is saying to them, Examine your relationship with the Lord and remember the promises that you have made. Brothers and sisters, today, though we are many years and miles away from Paul and the city of Corinth, I want to encourage us to find regular rhythms of examining our relationship with the Lord as well. As you think about the ways in which you are giving or serving or loving one another, the ways that you are having a hard time forgiving one another, perhaps it's not just the actions that you need to focus on. 
perhaps you also ask yourself, where am I with God? And as I work to repair my relationship with God and to nurture my relationship with God, my giving, my serving, my loving, my forgiving, all of that will be impacted as well. Paul paints a wonderful picture in verses 7 through 9 of what I want us to consider for the rest of our time together today. Paul offers this framework, this concept that I'm calling graceful giving. Graceful giving. I'm calling it graceful giving because Paul offers up the example of the Macedonians and says that this kind of giving flows out of the grace that we have received from God. You see, grace is a beautifully rich concept for followers of Jesus. On one hand, grace speaks to any undeserved gift, any undeserved kindness that we receive from God. And at the very same time, grace always points us beyond that gift or that kindness and reminds us of the, of the ultimate gift of grace that we have received, and that is God's rec- reconciling work to us through Jesus Christ. So Paul says to them in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 7, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in giving. Verse 8, he says, I'm not commanding you, I'm not telling you what to do, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Verse 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul speaks in verse 7, and he gives the key verse of this appeal. He says to these brothers and sisters, I know You live in this crazy society where you love excelling, where you actually love looking excellent, even if you're not really excellent. And he says to them that you put so much energy into your knowledge, so much energy into your appearance, so much energy into your reputation, that I need that same energy when it comes to your giving. Paul calls them to graceful giving. And he says to them that the giving reflects the grace they had come to know in Jesus Christ. And so here's three things that I want us to remember today about graceful giving, and then we're going to head home. The first is simply this. Graceful giving is patterned after the example of Jesus Christ. Graceful giving is patterned after the example of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 8 and 9, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul challenges the Corinthians to excel in giving, and he does so by calling them to see their generosity toward others in direct correlation to the generosity that God had displayed towards them. Paul's reminder to the Corinthians and the reminder to us today is this. That as you experience the goodness of the gospel, which is the story of God's lavish love toward us, that we have some examples of that, what that looks like. Paul lifts up the example of the Macedonians. This is, is an example of others who were faithful. But he also ultimately points them to the example of Jesus. He says, our generosity flows simply out of patterning our life after Jesus. He says, Jesus is our life. Jesus is our blueprint. Jesus is our roadmap. Jesus is our guide. And he offers an an encouragement 
live like Jesus. Your giving will be graceful as you learn to live like Jesus. He says that God has, in his infinite love for us, poured out his grace on us. And we would be remiss if we let the grace stop with us. Don't be the cog in the wheel. He says the grace that God has poured out on you is for the sake that you might pour it out on others. So pass it on. Don't let the grace stop with you. He says grace is patterned after the example of Jesus Christ. But not only is, is graceful giving patterned after the example of Jesus Christ, he says graceful giving brings together eager willingness and actual doingness. I know that's not a word. That's how much I really want you all to get this. I'm willing to make up words so you can understand what I'm saying here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Paul says to them, enthusiasm without execution doesn't accomplish anything. He says to them, don't simply promise out of excitement, produce. Have you ever seen someone who is excited about your life and your future only up to the point to where it costs them something? You have this new idea, this new program, this ministry you're starting, and they're hyping you up and they're encouraging you, and then you ask them to do something for it, and they go ghost. Brothers and sisters, Paul is reminding us today to not just be eager and excited and willing, but to actually execute. How many promises have you made to people and not followed through with them? How many times have you seen yourself as a chronic starter and failed to finish something? How many ministry teams have you joined here at the sanctuary but failed to show up to serve? Our job is not to be starters, but finishers. And our generosity, our graceful living and giving comes out of simply doing the basic of finishing the work. Paul reminds us that graceful giving brings together eager willingness and actual doingness. The final reminder Paul gives them is that graceful giving points us towards a covenant. That when we give, that when we serve, it points us to something beyond just that act. Paul says it's relational, it's mutual, and it's about equality. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Paul says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are being generous and graciously giving now, and one day at the appropriate time, your brothers and sisters will also repay your generosity. 
He says to them, perhaps they won't repay you with money in the same way, but it's clearly some sense of mutuality that we are giving because we are together. And where there are needs and I have plenty, I ought to give towards those, knowing that when I myself come into need, that the brothers and sisters will also meet my needs as well. Paul paints a picture using the words from the book of Exodus, the, 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 the Exodus story, and he, paints, he gives these words of there being a time where God had, had, had supplied quail and manna to the brothers and sisters, and, and they went out at the, at the start of the day, and they would get just what they needed, not too much. There was no one who did not have. And Paul uses those words there in verse 15, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Paul says we can be graceful in our giving because God will always supply. That I can be generous. I can be loving. I can be forgiving because God is not in short supply. Brothers and sisters, when we hold our hands tight and fail to bless others, it's ultimately because we're not sure there's enough. We're ultimately not sure that God will actually provide. We're ultimately saying that what I have is actually all I have. And that's in contradiction to the good news of the gospel. It says that every blessing, Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Paul says about this gift that it is a covenant. It points to a covenant. It points to the relationship that we have with the Father. It is a tangible demonstration of the fact that we belong to one another because we belong to Jesus Christ. One of the things I was encouraged by this week as I was studying this. And I don't know that any pastor actually gets excited about talking about giving because they get looks like that. But I found something cool as, as I was studying this passage. Paul uses a bunch of different words to talk about this collection. Paul, he, 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 to talk about this offering, he calls it a collection. He calls it a blessing. He calls it a priestly service. He calls it a fellowship. He calls it a ministry. He calls it a grace and all those words point to giving, but they're not limited to giving. And when I studied this this week, what I realized was the graceful giving that Paul calls us to is actually just graceful living. That our giving will actually reflect our lives. Our giving says something about our actual life. That is, if we live gracefully, we won't have to be probed and prompted to give gracefully. So I want to suggest to you today that everything I've been saying about graceful giving is actually pointing to something broader. It's pointing to graceful living. Because our graceful living is also modeled after the example of Jesus. We want to live the lives that Jesus lived. Our graceful living brings together eager willingness and actual doing this. We don't just want to be the people who are idealists and who run from, from cause to cause because it seems cool at the moment. We actually want to be people who finish, who are faithful, who do the work of Jesus. And graceful living is also covenantal. It's out of a relationship that we live the lives of grace because God has loved us and has given us everything that we need. Brothers and sisters, grace is such a profound and beautiful blessing, and it's even more beautiful against the backdrop of this selfie world that we live in. We live in a world that's fixated on me, me, me. Look at me. Look where I've gone. Look what I've done. 
Look at the initials before and after my name. But grace says you are at your best when you're actually caring for another. Grace says in this world that seems so set on turning its back on people and exploiting people and killing people and gossiping about people and trying to possess and, and, and do over people, Grace says, I remember my responsibility to other people. So the question this week, I want you to sit with these. How will you begin to live gracefully this week? How will you learn from and live from the example of Jesus this week? How will you bring together your eager willingness on one hand and some actual doingness on the other hand this week? How will your life be a tangible expression of the covenant that we have with God this week? Paul calls these brothers and sisters who excel in so many things. They, they, they were incredibly, they were incredibly uh, um, gifted in so many ways. And Paul says, since you excel in all these other things, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in love, see that you also excel in the gift, in the grace of giving. Brothers and sisters, that's my prayer for us as well. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this time to open your word and hear from you. We pray, God, that you would continue to speak to our hearts as we head into this week. God, you have called us to lives that are graceful, lives that display the grace that you have poured out on us. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this week that they would be reminded of the grace you've poured out on them. Remember the words of the song, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters. God lifted me, now safe am I. That is the good news of our life, that God heard our cry and came to see about us. God, as we remember the fact that we have been saved, I pray that our lives would be transformed as well. That as we are on our job, we would ask ourselves, what does graceful living look like here? That when we find ourselves in difficult situations, struggling to love our brothers and sisters, we'll ask ourselves, how can I be graceful in this moment? Even for those who have done us wrong, what does your grace require of us? God, as we live gracefully, every aspect of our lives will begin to change. We'll love differently. We'll serve differently. We'll forgive differently. Help us, God, to be the people you've called us to be. You are taking us somewhere. You have not brought us this far to leave us. You have not left us up to our own devices. So thank you, Lord, for the beauty of salvation. Help us now, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help our doubt. Help our fear. We love you today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.